to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moira, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. We do indeed. Debunk. You know, it's funny because (laughs) I feel like in this topic that we're going to do, there's a bit of an evaluation of the term debunking, and it has a slight negative connotation to it, which made me think about what we do and like everything that we debunk. Um, And I just want to preface this episode in saying... When we say debunking, we still believe that there is some kind of truth out there in certain aspects. Oh, totally. A lot we, of we debunk with love. Debunk with love, but there's just it's the skepticism that we have. It's the the healthy skepticism that really gets us questioning things. Am I right? Well, I sometimes find it's funny. I actually had this conversation on one of the panels I was doing this weekend. I find that. Um, being skeptical or some of the most skeptical people I know are some of the strongest believers. And part of why we are so skeptical is because we believe so strongly we won't accept anything but those absolute truths. That's true. The evidence, Evidence. if you will. Evidence. So this will be a good one for that. So now that we've planted that seed, we're going to probe some information, (laughs) if you will. God, that's bad. (laughs) How many, I'm just curious, just going in for myself so I can make up a drinking game in my brain. Uh, how many, how many puns about anal probes are this going to be this episode? That was the only one, but now I'm going to try uh, to fit more in just for you. Just because I'm going to take a drink every time you do yes, it? Yes, I like to encourage okay. that. You do. I do. Uh, Kim, Tipsy Kim is one of my favorite Kims. Um, oh, dear. It's a good time. <laughs> so this topic... We have not delved into this type of topic yet, so I am very excited to talk UFOs, aliens. I don't know why I'm making a ghost noise for UFOs. They're spooky, too. It's a little paranormal moment. That's the UFO sound. I don't know. Just like that. (laughs) Just like that. But here's the deal. I just have to preface this by saying... I have wanted to do a UFO topic since we started this podcast, and it's been driving me freaking crazy trying to decide which topic to do, because there are so many options to talk about. Like, truly, I want to sit down with Tom DeLonge of Blink-182 and just, like, tell me everything. But that's not what this episode is about. We're going to go back in time. And we are going to go to a topic that is considered one of the most well-documented alleged alien abductions that we have. And this is the Travis Walton UFO incident. As it is portrayed in the 1993 film, A Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky. Which was inspired by the book, The Walton Experience, by Travis Walton himself. So, fun fact, I really tried hard to find this book, The Walton Experience, by Travis Walton. And it is absolutely out of print. 
You did find it. I did find it. But <laughs> only for, the cheapest I found it for was like $99. Oh, I, the cheapest I found was like 150 And I found a couple cheaper options, but I figured you still, still would not want to pay that. Still too expensive for me. Sorry, friends. Yeah. Um, if we get more patrons, I would love to contribute more to research. But currently, we are broke as a joke and uh, not trying to spend money on books that are out of print. However, I did find some sources that were very helpful because I will tell you right now, that movie, Fire and Sky, that is a drama. That is not necessarily fact. Um, but what? What? A movie not being fact? Who knew? A Hollywood movie not being factual? Twat? Twat? Also, Elliot Twat. from... Uh, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. <laughs> Stupid. Um, Elliot from E.T. is in this movie. Uh, he's He plays Steve, which is fun. Um, and uh, I did not pick up on that when I first watched that movie. Fun facts, fun facts. Um, it's like Alien Inception kind of. Uh, but, <laughs> hey, man, you, you, you know, you have, you have a theme. You sure. F- go with it. Why not? But anyway, sure. this movie, not a great source. Maybe good for entertainment. Also, like, kind of a drama that's fun and, like, not super dramatic until you get to the actual abduction scene, and then it's, like, a straight-up horror movie. So, you know, depends on what your preferences are as far as film goes. Watch it if you like. If you've already seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Now... I really wanted to compare that to other stuff I could find. Because as we know, with abduction stories, there's a lot of hearsay. With anything paranormal, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of hearsay. Oh, yeah. And with the Travis Walton story, there's actually a documentary. And it's called Travis, the True Story of Travis Walton. It's on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. You have to watch it with commercials. Fair warning. It's very annoying. It starts like oh, right no, in the middle of someone's sentence. And you're like, really? You couldn't have timed that worse. But whatever. You do what you got to do to watch it. I could not peel my eyes from this documentary, especially the second half of it. It was actually very good. So hmm. what's interesting is they get everybody involved and all the people who researched it. So it's really cool to see the kind of evidence. 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 So a lot of my story and information that I'm going to share with you is from that documentary. It's also from Travis Walton's actual website that shows portions of his book. So I did read parts of his book, not the whole thing. And then also additional ancillary sources. So Let's talk about the incident, shall we? It's gonna, we're going to go through it in a couple different phases and different perspectives. So the incident. On November 5th, 1975, 22-year-old Travis Walton was working as a forestry worker with a timber stand improvement crew within the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona. Funny name for Arizona. That's just me. Uh, <laughs> apparently, this little tiny town was founded by Mormons, and it's kind of like the bar in Cheers where everyone knows your name because everybody knew each other there. So this timber crew uh, was a team of seven dudes, and they were working on the Turkey Springs tree thinning contract. They were cutting fuel reduction strip up the crest of a ridge running south mm-hmm. just outside of Snowflake. And the whole purpose of what they did was to help keep the forest 
like clean, less burnable, just more sustainable. It was kind of a, a great way of just taking care of the forest. So it wasn't like they were loggers just like cutting down a bunch of trees. It was they were actually maintaining the trees in the space, which is, I think, a kind of fun fact. Hmm. Now, the head of their group was uh, the boss, the crew boss, Mike Rogers. Mike was 28 and he was the oldest of the seven guys. And he also was Travis's best friend. Funny enough. So he pulled on Travis on this gig because he knew it was a big deal. He had actually been bidding these thinning contracts from the Forest Service for nine years. And the Turkey Springs, uh, particular one that they were working on, paid Uh the highest acre price that Mike had ever received. So he wanted to bring in Travis to help him make some money, too. So the rest of the team consisted of Alan Dallas, John Goulet, Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson, and Steve Pierce. Steve Pierce was the youngest of the bunch at 17 years old. He's the one that Elliot played in the movie. Um, Uh, And when I say Elliot, I'm talking about the character of Elliot. I do not know that actor's name. I should know that off the top of my head. Edie Von Home. Edie Von Home. Elliot. 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 So this is not a story about E.T., just fun facts. Uh, (laughs) Now, (laughs) Dallas, Alan Dallas... He was kind of the rowdy one of the group, and I love the way they portray him in the movie because they make him seem like this, like, just doofus asshole that just tries to cause shit with everyone and start fights with everyone. So basically what we're saying is that Kim (gasps) is Dallas. Is my soulmate? (sighs) He's a little older now. I don't know if you'd still want to date him, but, you know, maybe we can call in a favor. I don't discriminate based on age. Noted. (laughs) Noted for our listeners and our friends. (laughs) So Dallas was the rowdy one of the group. He liked to stir things up when they were on the job, either just because he was bored or just liked to start drama. And he would carelessly cut trees where they might happen to fall on other dudes if he had a grudge on them, which not the best move. Um, Not the fan favorite of the group, if you will. And he actually had uh, some pretty serious anger management issues within the group and would always start fights that he never finished. So he and Travis were kind of like butting heads on this particular day, but he did that with everybody all the time. So it wasn't anything really new or different. Sure. So this is November, right? So it gets pretty cold as the sun goes down in uh, November and This team had a lot of work to do on this particular day, so they worked until it was dark, and it almost got into the single digits when the sun went down. It was pretty chilly. After the job was over, they all load into Mike's truck, and just to map it out for you so we have a nice visual, you have Dwayne by the left rear door, John and Steve are in the middle, in the back, and Alan is by the rear right door, so four dudes in the back seat, and in the front, You have Travis on the passenger side shotgun. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Ken in the middle, and then Mike was driving because it was his truck. So apparently this was like the lineup. This is how they sat every day, non-smokers in the front, smokers in the back, and that's how they figured it out. So now at 6.10 p.m., Mike starts the car. They start going up toward the ridge, toward Rim Road, and figure, you know, we'll be home by 7.30 at this point. And about 100 yards ahead, they see a strange light coming through the trees on their right-hand side. Travis assumes that the glow is part of, like, the sunset, and the sun is going down in the west, but then he realizes that the sun had actually set 30 minutes prior, 
So mm. this definitely could not have been the sun because it already went down, right? So they were starting to think about other things. He was thinking, Travis was thinking, what else could it be? Maybe it was the light of like hunters that were camping nearby, like a little fire that they had, but it was pretty big. Or maybe headlights, maybe a plane crash. I guess one of the guys was in, <laughs> I'm sorry, in wait. the Navy or something. Or <laughs> Who just thinks, I see funny lights, maybe a plane crash. Is that, they is thought that... it was like fire. So they thought well, something sure. would have been burning. So like, but you would, I don't know. The, the crash itself, I would think would stand out more than the fire, but that's just me. I mean, but the other thing to pay attention to is that when they were working, they had a bunch of chainsaws that made a lot of noise. And so maybe they couldn't yeah. hear a crash that happened if Plane it happened before. Crashes make a lot of noise. That's true. I'm See, just... but we're debunking it, and it's just these are ideas that are going through their heads at like sure. light speed. No. I, I, for myself, that is, I don't think in the history of man has that ever been one of the first things I've assumed. I see lights. Must be a plane crash. But I also Fair. live in a city, so... We are also in totally different situations. <laughs> also true. I'm, this is, again, this is where, this is the rabble rousing. I'm, I'm, I'm rousing the rabbles. Rouse the rabbles, Kim. So, at this point, everybody else in the truck sees what Travis is also seeing, and everything gets quiet. Not one person is saying a word. They're all just staring at this light. So, as they continue driving up the road toward the brightness... The yellowish brilliance goes over their path onto the road another 40 yards ahead of them. So it's starting to get bigger. And suddenly, this is a quote, we were electrified by the most awesome, incredible sight we had seen in our entire lives, end Ooh. quote. As the truck skidded to a dusty halt, Travis throws his door open. I'm just like, what the hell, Travis? Why are you throwing your door open? Keep your door closed, man. You don't know what this is. He's ballsy. He throws his door open. He needs to be Watson. dramatic. He's a drama queen. Apparently, the window's not big enough. He needs a clearer view. Mike immediately shuts off his engine. Less than 30 yards away and about 20 feet above the ground, they see a strange golden disc hovering silently. The craft was stationary, hovering well below the treetops near the crest of the ridge, the soft yellow haze from the craft dimly illuminated the immediate area with an eerie glow. Travis, quote, estimated the object to have an overall diameter of 15 or 20 feet. It was 8 or 10 feet thick. The flattened disc had a shape like that of two gigantic pie pans placed lip to lip. Sidebar. Love that he's comparing it to pies. <laughs> I, he had me at pie. Like my, right? my attention immediately just notched up when I heard the word pie. With a small round bowl turned upside down on the top. This guy likes to bake. What can I say? Barely visible at our angle of sight, the white dome peeked over the upper outline of the ship. We could see darker stripes of a dull silver sheen that divided the glowing areas into pan panel-like sections. The dim yellowish light given off by the surface had the luster of hot metal fresh from a blasted furnace. So that's a pretty descriptive description. A little <laughs> redundant there, but that's like very specific. And obviously, Travis is not the only person that's seeing this. They have a carload of people seeing sure. this all at the same time. There were no visible antenna or protrusions of any kind. 
They couldn't tell if there were any kind of hatch, ports, windows. It just looked like a solid thing of metal. And it almost appeared to be dead in the air, like literally not even moving. It was then that Travis felt the urge to get closer. So what does Travis do? (laughs) Idiot move. He jumps out of the truck and runs toward the ship. The guys start yelling at him to come back rightfully because what the hell that's not a choice you should usually make listeners at home please don't make this choice don't do it don't do it but you know travis didn't listen he didn't stop he ends up getting about six feet away from the bottom of the ship and he hears a really weird sound he could detect a strange blend of almost low and high-pitched mechanical sounds simultaneously which Mm. is really interesting so it wasn't just high pitch but it was also low pitch at the same time And there were intermittent high-piercing beeping noises overlaid on that sound in the distant low-rumbling sound of what sounded like to him heavy machinery. It was unlike anything he had ever heard before. And then all of a sudden, there was a thunderous swell in the vibrations that he was hearing, and it it spooked Travis. He jumps, and then he ends up crouching because he got so freaked out, and he's right below the craft at this point. And as this happens a tremendously bright blue-green ray shot from the bottom of the craft. This is exactly when Travis loses consciousness, Mm. and he actually felt a numbing force of a blow that felt like a high-voltage electrocution, Hmm. and he blacks out. Now everybody else is still watching as this is happening. So the others watch in fear as their friend is lifted from the ground Arms and legs spread out, body arched backwards, and they hear the intense bolt that made a sharp crackling or popping sound that happened when the high-voltage electrocution happened to Travis. They Mm -hmm. hear it. Travis is then hurled backward through the air about 10 feet, violently hits the ground, and lands limply. They literally all thought he was dead by the way that they saw his body move. Jeez. So the guys freak the fuck out, per, like understandably so. I mean, yeah. Yelling at Mike, God, let's get out of here. Get out of here. Go. Drive, right? So they take off. Mike literally thought that the, the flying saucer was chasing them because of what it just did to their friends. So they freak out and start driving super fast and on a road that you're not supposed to drive super fast on. So he ends up having to slow down because he's worried he's going to like permanently damage the car and then not be able to get out. So he slows down, but still is going. And as they start driving away, Mike tells everybody, we got to go back for Travis. We can't, we can't just leave him there. Everybody freaks out. They're like, no, go. We don't want to be taken, blah, blah, blah. They're making a huge deal. And Mike literally tells everyone, I am going back for Travis. If you are not going to come with me, get out. I'll come pick you up later. Sure. And everyone's just like, oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm not getting out. No. Okay. I guess I have to go with you now. So they all start to drive back. No one dared to be left alone without a vehicle after what they just saw. So they all go back and they start searching the area. There's no UFO. They don't see a body. Everybody ends up staying together initially in the headlights of the car, trying to look around. Uh, Mike was the only one who had a flashlight, and so they all are standing close to Mike trying to see in the darkness with this flashlight. And there's, like, not a sign of anybody, of anything there. There were no foreign objects, no unusual markings, no burns, pad impressions, no disturbed ground, footprints, nothing. 
not a trace of tracks or evidence of a struggle at all, Hmm. which is weird because they just saw this happen with their own eyes, right? So they get back in the truck and they begin to drive back to their town. And that's when they realize, well, shit, now I have to tell people the story and no one's going to believe us, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a wild story. Crazy story. Yeah. Chuck Ellison was the deputy sheriff. He arrived once the crew called out for help and said when he got there, a couple of the guys were crying. Mm -hmm. Also understandable. Immediately, the police assumed that one of them killed Travis. Like, without any kind of doubt, (laughs) they immediately think this is a rough and tumble type of crew, blue-collar guys out working with chainsaws in the forest. Somebody got pissed, killed the other dude, did something with them, and they're coming up with this weird story to try to cover it up. Sure. Which, to be fair, <laughs> talking to this audience and you, Kim Douthit, uh, yes. not so hard to believe that someone might think something like that upon hearing an abduction story. So all the police people thought the story was bogus. They literally accused this entire group of murder, but without officially accusing them because they didn't have anything to go off of. There was no evidence, evidence, evidence to accuse them of murder. Right. And they're all telling the same story and they interrogate the group, literally telling them, quote, tell us where the body is and we can go home and get this over with. End quote, which is just Hmm. messed up. Yeah. So they, they search for Travis, obviously, and they don't find anything. There's not a footprint. It's literally what the guys tried to go back and look for, not finding anything. Same with the police. They involved scent dogs, helicopters, a thorough, like, multiple people search. Didn't turn up anything. So then there's this idea to give the group a polygraph test. And this is portrayed in the movie. This yeah, is the thing this. that happens in the movie. It's true. This did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were basically forced into it. And the guys were super worried about it because there has been, you know, there have been times in the past where people have been given polygraph tests that essentially frame people um, because they're not always the most reliable. Um, So the guys were worried that they were being framed. And if they failed the test, they'd be jailed forever. But they knew that they were innocent and didn't do anything to their friend. Sure. So they were really worried about going in and taking this test. Mm -hmm. So psych. Gilson was a polygraph expert for the Arizona Department of Public Safety. He was the one to do the polygraph tests with them. Um, And he actually wrote the questions and administered the polygraph tests. He initially tested Steve, young Steve Elliott first, um, because he was the youngest, most vulnerable. And he literally saw this dude like stressing out super hard. Steve actually said he thought that he was going to go to jail forever after taking this polygraph test. So he was super, super, super nervous to do it Um, because he thought that his nerves would cause him to fail it, which is fair because that's part of how a polygraph is taken. It's it's, it's one of the reasons why polygraphs and, and still a lot of people don't realize this, like you are never required to take a polygraph and polygraphs cannot be used in a court of law. Love a fun fact. Love a fun fact. But in this case, they were forced into it. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, that's that's not actually, I mean like 1975, 
Sure, 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 sure. Today, they can imply they can force you into it. They cannot actually force you to take a polygraph, just saying. Noted. Now all of our listeners also know. Nobody can force you to Uh take a polygraph test. You can always refuse. Because they cannot be admissible in a court of law. Anyway. Fun facts, the more you know. The more you know with Kim. (laughs) (laughs) So... Steve goes first, mainly because when Cy saw him, he was like, oh, this guy. If he's lying and I catch him lying, I'm not going to do the rest of the dudes. It'll save me a bunch of time. I won't have to do, like, six polygraph tests. So he purposely makes Steve go first because he thinks if anyone's lying, it's probably the young one trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he passes. Steve passes. And so he's like, ah, oh, shoot, now I have to do all the others. So he does the others. <laughs> and uh, I just think it's funny. This guy's trying to take a shortcut with the uh, polygraphs. Um, but these were the, there were only four questions that were asked and they were all asked on repeat for two hours per person. So like this was a vigorous testing. So these were the questions. Did you cause Travis Walton any physical injury last Wednesday? Do you know if Travis Walton was injured by some other member of your crew last Wednesday? Hmm. Do you know if Travis Walton's body was buried or hidden somewhere in the Springs area? Last Wednesday. Last last Wednesday, yes. Um, Did you tell the truth about actively seeing a UFO last Wednesday when Travis disappeared? Did you see the object hit him with a beam of light? So that was like a twofer for the last one. But Hmm. they all passed the test. Uh There was only one of them that didn't pass. And it was uh, our douche friend, Dallas, (laughs) who likes to cause trouble. Um, and he purposely was trying to mess with Psy uh, because he didn't want to participate in all of it and was being forced into it. And so he made the numbers look weird. It, it just wasn't, it was inconclusive for uh, Dallas. And so five of the six tests came back past. And the last one was inconclusive, but Cy knew why it was inconclusive because this guy was being a douche nozzle and not partake, participating properly, right? So mm-hmm. interesting that this many people were telling the truth about an alien encounter, right? Sure. So yeah. the sheriff still doesn't believe it. He's just like, yeah, no, I don't. Uh-uh. I mean, again, I, I can't say that I blame him. Like, Fair. I, I, just like from a practical standpoint, it's 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 right up there with the ghost did it excuse. Yes, but there's multiple people that saw it. Sure, but I mean, if if I'm the sheriff of a town, <laughs> and I have a but of of a small town too, like a, a tiny tiny town. And I have a bunch of dudes coming up to me saying an alien abducted our friend and this is why he disappeared. Can you tell me with 100% certainty that you'd be like, yeah, sure, totally an alien. You're right, man. I don't think I would say 100% yes, sure, but I also wouldn't say 100% no. And this is why you are the molder to my scully. Yes. (laughs) Now, this is where a wrench is thrown into things. Mm Mm-hmm. Because suddenly, five days and six hours after Travis goes missing, he reappears on the side of the road 30 miles away in Heber, Arizona. Heber? Heber. 
Oh, tomato, tomato. But it's 30 miles away from where they were all originally. Mm-hmm. Now, according to Travis, when he awoke, one of the crafts was hovering above him and then zipped up vertically into the night sky without a sound. He then runs down the highway, tries to find a place where he can make a phone call to call for help. He ends up at a row of telephone booths at an Exxon station and dials the operator to call his sister at 12.05 a.m. And his brother-in-law, Grant, answers the phone. Grant fully thinks it's a prank, and I guess they've been getting a lot of pranks because, you know, there's a lot of fun, like, theories being thrown around town because everybody knows everybody's business. Sure. So and there's Grant, probably a lot of drinking that happens around town because everybody knows each other's business. That is also true. Now, Grant thought it was a prank, rightfully, because everybody at this point thinks that Travis is dead. But Travis literally tells him, no, it's me. They brought me back. He literally says, they brought me back. So Grant's like, well, what am I going to do? So he calls Travis's brother, Dwayne. They decide, you know what? We're going to go. We'll just see. Is, if it's him, wonderful. If it's not, we'll, like, mess this dude up. So, like, regardless, they, they knew they had to at least try. So Grant picks up Dwayne and drives to Heber to see if it's really Travis. And when they find him, Travis is in one of the phone booths, clearly traumatized, like shaking violently, and at one point finally allows uh, Dwayne to hold him like a baby because he was like just so absolutely traumatized. The movie does portray this. It's a little mm-hmm. bit over the top in the movie as it is because it's a movie. But like that well, no, it was actually... Like the 90s too, I think, right? When the movie was made. Yeah, so that, that was a little bit the, the, the story at the time. Supposed to be a little bit of melodramatic and a little yeah. melodrama for us all. This definitely has its share of melodrama. But like this guy was seriously traumatized. And it was at this point that Travis literally thought that he'd only been gone for a couple of hours. He didn't realize how much time had gone by. And Dwayne tells him, dude, feel your face. And Travis touches his face and feels significant facial hair growth. And he Mm. even says, like, I just shaved this morning. So there's no way that that much facial hair could have grown in one day. It was about five days worth of growth. And he had actually, in five days, lost 12 pounds, Hmm. which is a lot to lose in five days. So Travis gets home. He tells what he can remember of his story to his friends and family, if he can even talk about it, because he's so traumatized about his abduction. He couldn't remember all the details. And of course, immediately, news spreads like wildfire that not only is Travis back, but Travis was abducted by aliens. And now the media finds out. So the National Enquirer comes in, not the most reliable of sources, comes in. Local UFO groups and researchers come in, and a bunch of, like, regular media also swarms the town, and you get people from Japan, from London, there's people from literally all over that start to swarm to this little tiny town in Arizona to cover this case of this alien abduction. Answers were all the same. They were investigating it, but there were no current answers. There was Mm -hmm. no resolve. So anytime the, the police department were asked questions, they couldn't answer any of the questions. 
Now, Travis's family were very worried for Travis because clearly he wasn't in the best state of mind at that point in time. He wasn't doing any interviews. And if it got too much about UFOs, they were worried that Travis would actually be handed over to the government to, like, do tests on him because if it was actually real and a thing, then the government would get a hold of Travis and what would happen to him then. So they were just really protective of Travis. So Dwayne ends up being the decision maker for Travis because of how traumatized he was from the experience and couldn't really, like, speak for himself. So there's a lot of actual um, news reports where they're interviewing Dwayne, and you can actually see it in the documentary. It's pretty interesting. Now... Upon hearing that his friends took a polygraph and they were truthful, Travis initially says, I want to do a polygraph. I want them to know that I'm telling the truth, literally to prove that he isn't lying. Sure. But he ends up being advised not to take the test because his experience was way more stressful and traumatic Mm -hmm. than what the other guys went through. And technically, fun facts, (laughs) the more you know, What a polygraph measures is stress reactions Mm -hmm. and questions about stressful memories would bring upon stress reactions. So what Travis's family was worried about was that Travis would be triggered by the trauma that he experienced and the questions that were asked and that his stress reactions would cause the wrong type of reaction for a polygraph test and then prove him to be lying. So it would actually put him in a more negative space than he already was in, and it already was a negative space to begin with. So it would have created a lot of false impressions had he taken the test. But the bad thing about him not taking it was that it then made other people question his authenticity even more. So it was Mm -hmm. kind of like a double-edged sword. Now enter the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, a nationally known UFO organization based in Tucson. They reached out to Travis and arranged for a hypnosis to be done for Travis by Dr. James Harder. Mm -hmm. Harder did a regression on Travis, so it allowed him to recall details of his abduction that really allowed him to go into detail and talk through it when he couldn't do that previously. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, the fear instilled in Travis prevented him from even speaking about any of the details of the incident. He had like general awareness of stuff that happened, but could not put it into words. And Dr. Harder stressed the psychological impact that the incident had on Travis and just by doing the hypnosis, it actually really helped Travis reduce his stress levels that he had had for months. So he got some help, which is great. The session was actually filmed and everything was done properly in the hypnosis that was studied by other people that did hypnosis to make sure that nothing weird was going on. But it unveiled the entirety of Travis's story between his blackouts. And this is the juicy part. So I'm going to tell you his story of his abduction. So after blacking out in the forest, Travis awoke in excruciating pain with a taste of metal in his dry mouth. His body felt weak, like he had a mixture of exertion and illness, and he knew something was horribly wrong. His vision was impacted, super blurry, and it hurt his eyes to try to open them, but he could make out a brightness above him, and he actually thought he was in a hospital and thought he was, like, laying on a bed in a hospital with a bright light. He begins to have vertigo. 
He realizes that his chest and stomach are exposed and his shirt and jacket are shoved up over his shoulders, which he thought was kind of weird because, like, if you're in a hospital, they take your clothes off and put a gown on you, right? Like, so he noted that in his mind that that was kind of weird. But then he realizes that there's a massive object on his abdomen. Literally from his armpits all the way down to his hip, there is a metal or plastic device that's about four to five inches thick and curved across his entire chest and stomach, holding him down. So as he realizes that this contraption is on him, he starts to see blurry figures of what he thinks are doctors leaning over him with white masks and caps wearing an unusual orange-colored surgical gown. Mm-hmm. And now his vision starting to come back. He notices that they have huge brown eyes, bigger than human-sized eyes, and he freaks the fuck out. What big eyes you have. The better to see you with. So he flies off the table, jumps <laughs> off the table, tries to grab something and break it to swing at these like humanoids. Doesn't work very well. Barely hits one of them, shoving another one. They don't even react. They just kind of like stand still and don't say anything, which is also just kind of a strange reaction to someone trying to hit you. Now, this is Travis's description of them. Quote, they were a little under five feet in height. They had a basic humanoid form, two legs, two arms, hands with five digits each, and a head with the normal human arrangement of features. But beyond the outline, any similarity to humans was terrifyingly absent. Their thin bones were covered with white, marshmallowy-looking flesh. I could not make out the details of their shoes, but they had very small feet, about a size four by our measure. Their bald heads were disproportionately large for their puny bodies. They had bulging oversized craniums, a small jaw structure, and an underdeveloped appearance to their features that was almost infantile. Their thin-lipped mouths were narrow. I never saw them open. The iris was so large that even parts of the pupils were hidden by the lids, giving the eyes a certain cat-like appearance. There was very little of the white part of the eye showing. They had no lashes and no eyebrows. That is very specific. <laughs> it is very specific. So then they leave the room casually. Also, I think very funny that they're just casually leaving the room. They casually sauntered out of the room while I was being anally probed. Yes. So naturally, Travis decides to escape or explore. Choose uh, your own adventure. I would explore, but I'm that <laughs> asshole. Y'all, aliens abducted me. I gotta see what their ship looks like. Uh, maybe take some selfies for the IG. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. Scully being a molder. It would be great. <laughs> that would be Scully <laughs> just being like, yo. Well, yo, guess yo. who was right? <laughs> <laughs> so Travis gets up, decides to explore, if you will, roams around and finds a control room with a tiny chair. And there's a wall that looks like outer space, so it's like a big window, essentially, and it's, like, dark with stars. Out, outer space-ish. Yeah, outer space-ish. Shish. Outer, outer space-ish. 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 Oh, Is it a very space-ish space? Space-ish. Outer space. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's darkness and stars. 
So <laughs> that's of, my of nickname course, in high school. Darkness and stars. Yeah. He sees some nondescript buttons. What are you gonna do when you see some push nondescript them. buttons? Push all of them. You have to push them all. <laughs> so he starts to push the buttons because yes. he hears Kim in his brain. Yes. And. All of a sudden, the stars start moving as he's pushing the buttons. So he's he like, put them into hyperdrive. He did something. So he starts to freak <laughs> out and like pushes the same buttons again to stop it because now he's worried that he might make his situation more fatal than it already is. He hit the self-destruct button on the Asgard spaceship. He could could have. It wasn't labeled. He never know. It wasn't. This is why you label your buttons. It's true. So then a, uh, a literal human walks in the room. <laughs> I like that it's a literal human and not a figurative human. <laughs> I mean, it actually technically might have been a figurative human. We don't know. Uh, this dude know. was six foot two. It was a man with a helmet. Oh, wait, and I think I dated this guy. Hold on. <laughs> you dated a man with a helmet? Was it clear? I did. He was six did foot he, two. Did he, was he wearing a blue spacesuit? And was he He was. How did you know? Was he evenly proportionate and muscular? (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Jonathan, it's you. (laughs) So Jonathan walks in the room. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, Jonathan's not carrying any tools or weapons on his belt or in his pants. His name is not actually Jonathan. (laughs) I'm just playing on Kim's joke. This is a true story, apparently, allegedly. Um... (laughs) There is no insignia marked on his clothing. He does not care about labels. Um, That's John to a T. <laughs> so when Travis sees him, he's like, oh, my people, literally. And he's just like, I got to ask this guy, where am I? He starts asking him all these questions. And this dude just stands there and doesn't say anything. Strong, silent type. Is that John too? Totally. <laughs> So <laughs> tune in next week for I Date an Alien. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so this character who presumably is named John. Uh, <laughs> I like it. We're keeping it. We're alien keeping John. It. John alien the John. alien. Yep. He motions for Travis to follow him. So Travis follows him. Sure. They descend down a short, steep ramp, seven or eight feet to the floor. And this is when Travis realizes he's actually not outdoors. He thought he was at first, but he's in a massive dome-shaped room where there's a bunch of other smaller and larger UFOs, like the one that he saw, inside of this dome. And as they're walking through the dome-shaped room, they end up entering a white room, approximately 15 square feet, with another eight-foot-high ceiling, just like the last one they were in. And the room had a table and chair in it. And guess what else it had? What else? Three other humans, supposed human friends. Two men and a woman were standing around the table. So they were all wearing the same outfit as alien dude number one, but no helmet. So allegedly, they were all pristine versions of humans. The description that he had of the woman was very funny to me. It was like, oh, it was the epitome of the female form. I was like, shut the fuck up. Get out. But okay. Right here, buddy. Right here. And for those of you who cannot see this visual, because this is an auditory medium, there's a lot of... But we will make this available for our patrons on Patreon. (laughs) There's a lot of birds flying around um, in our video. But it's the kind of the middle finger. Um, yes. My, so, my middle finger's caw. Caw-caw. Caw-caw. 
So allegedly, they were pristine versions of humans. Uh, a perfect sure. ideal of what a human body would look like. No blemishes, no imperfections. Like, almost plastic. These people didn't look normal. Oh, Hollywood. True. So what do they do? They actually lay Travis down on a table, and he lets them. And he notices that the woman has an object in her hand that kind of looks like, uh, you know, those plastic oxygen masks that they put on you when you're about to, like, go into surgery? Not the direction my mind went, but sure. Sure. So plastic mask for your face for oxygen, but it had, like, a black little ball inside of it. And... She goes and presses it down on Travis's mouth and nose, and before he could reach for it and touch her hand, he passes out, loses consciousness. And the next thing he remembers is waking up on the side of the road in Heber. And that is his abduction story. Now, in an interview with Jim Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization on Arizona's Face the State show. Mm-hmm. Jim Lorenzen was interviewed and asked, you have listened to the description that he gave us of his ordeal, talking about Travis. What are your comments or reactions in comparison to past case? Let's say that again. What are your comments or reactions in comparison with past cases? Mm-hmm. And Jim says, quote, I was struck by the fact that he described these beings that didn't look quite human. He described them precisely the way another person has described them who had a similar experience. Now, this case has not been published anywhere, and no case like it, I know, has been published. So it's something that Travis could not have read anywhere, and the descriptions are identical, end quote. Do, 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 do. <laughs> kind of weird, right? Yeah. yeah. Scully scullying. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to wait till the end before I start laying all my scully cards on the table. Oh, good. Because I have more, I've got a scully to introduce to you. Beautiful. Okay, cool. Then then you might scully card me without me. I know how to talk that, to Kim Douthit. You know I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a scully before you're going to give me a scully. So it's okay. It's, this is, you get me, boo. I do. That's why we good. That's why we good. Other people associated with UFO research ended up coming out of the woodworks, including nuclear physicist, your new best friend, Stanton Friedman, who always took a very scientific approach to investigation. Stanton, Stanton, call me. Our very own (laughs) Scully. This is a very funny quote from Stanton. He is in the documentary, and I tried to quote it as directly as possible, so it might sound kind of funny as me saying what he was saying, so I'll preface it by saying that. But he said, quote, my focus is on facts and data and evidence. 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 Not on sensationalism. Oh, man, after my own heart. And I haven't had a case sighting myself, so I'm not talking about, look at me, look what I saw, look what I did. And I specialize in using archives and places like that. And I think it's important that as a nuclear physicist, I demonstrate that you can be scientific when dealing with something as off the wall as flying saucers. I have what I call a big gray basket. Not black, not white, maybe. People want a yes or a no answer, and I say I don't know enough. So that is our friend, Stanton Friedman. And Friedman visited Travis at his home, Mm -hmm. spoke with him candidly to his friends, to his family. He even investigated the site. So more power to Friedman. 
Travis said, quote, the true watchdog of truth is someone who advocates objectivity, open-minded examination. You neither accept nor reject until all the evidence, 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 has been properly evaluated. You will always stay credible if you follow the evidence. Evidence. So let's evaluate the evidence, shall we? Let's. Number one, mm-hmm. several other people witnessed this event. They saw him being zapped and lifted into the air. It's sure. not just one person. It's not two people. There are six other people that saw this happen. Sure. One witness cases are easier to dismiss. This one, not so much. Seven people passed multiple polygraphs with the same story. At that time, there was no other UFO case with this type of evidence. 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 Now, up until recently, which is not what we're covering today. But I'm just going to say there is other evidence. Evidence. Recently. (laughs) But that's not what this is about. That's one. Okay? Number Mm -hmm. two, the polygraph. Dallas was the only one who was inconclusive, and he had been in minor scrapes with the law prior to that and didn't cooperate with the side during the polygraph, as we talked about earlier. One of the first polygraph examiners to review the case was Edward Gelb. He was the president of the American Polygraph Association in 1978. Now, he came to the conclusion that the possibility of five people passing a polygraph test and not telling the truth would be one million to one. Okay. So that's number two. Okay. Number three. Number three. Kim's still not convinced. I love it. I, I want to see how many of the things on my list get addressed. That's so. fine. I love this. This is fun. <laughs> this is why I was very excited to do this topic. So, number three, tree growth tree in the growth. immediate vicinity. Sure. Now, check this out. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 2014, a field survey was done on the site of the incident. Calculations show that the trees in the immediate area were producing wood fiber at 36 times the rate that they had the previous 85 years. Other trees exhibited the same kind of changes, and the effect diminished the farther you got away from the UFO site. So any of the trees that were in the surrounding area that were directly next to where that UFO site was were the Mm -hmm. only ones that had that growth rate. Everything else was different. And there's a directionality to them. Mm -hmm. There was a swelling of the rings. So if you cut a tree and you see all the rings, right? Mm-hmm. All of the rings that were on the side where the UFO was s- sighted, all of those rings were swollen and longer, all facing each other in the inside of a circle, which is really, really bizarre and weird. And there was no way to really explain that. So it was hypothesized that cell growth was caused by radiation. And it was actually proven to have been the case at Chernobyl as well. Hmm. A Polish university did a study in 1997 that found that trees exposed to radiation after Chernobyl had grown up to three times in volume of accelerated growth compared to previous years. Hmm. So radiation could have caused that. Now, I want to debunk this. I want to, like, question this one because I wanted to also – I actually did some digging to try to find this out and could not find anything. So if our listeners find anything, please tell us. Kim, if you want to, like, look into this, please tell me. Um, I don't know what else could have caused growth in wood or in trees other than radiation. And why would it only happen in that vicinity where that event took place? 
my two questions are, did something else happen in that space? Was there something underground that could have impacted the tree growth? So like there are other factors that I don't think were tapped into that could potentially impact that. But this is the claim of the people that are supporting the UFO claim. Okay. Fair. But, you know, we always got our debunkers. And this is where I am taking you to that realm of debunking versus skepticism. Okay, cool. So debunking, like I was saying in the beginning of the episode, like I, I feel like there's a negative connotation to it, that it always is proving something wrong. It doesn't exist. And it devalues sometimes the experience that another person has mm -hmm. because you weren't there to experience it. You then don't believe it. Sure. So sometimes that is the case. I think there's a fine line and a gray area between the two. Um, but there's also people that maliciously try to debunk things versus people that are just skeptical and trying to prove it right or wrong to the point yeah. of like what you do and what we do, yeah. right? I'm not so, trying to be an asshole, even though I sometimes come off as one. Sure, but the Except intention... Except for all the times I'm trying to be an asshole. Right, but there's a difference. It's yeah. like there is a time where you're like, no, screw you, I'm going to be a jerk. And there's other times that you're like... Well, but why? And I like wanting to understand yeah. how something happened, why it happened versus just saying, no, that's wrong. And I think a lot of debunkers just say, no, that's wrong without actually looking at any evidence. 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 So I love that you just said evidence and didn't whisper it. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just fucking sick. Sorry, I don't usually drop the F-bomb. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying evidence. 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 So, enter Philip Class. Have you ever heard of Philip Class? I believe so, yes. Philip Class was a jerk. Not to be confused with Philip Glass. Not to be confused with Philip, Philip Glass. This is Class with a K. I was like, wait. Um, Philip Class was the OG rude debunker and UFO. He was a journalist, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a rude journalist. And I will yeah. explain this to you because it's funny because I did research about him as like a from a neutral perspective, just sure. not knowing anything about this case and looking into who he was as a person. And then I also saw him in context of this case. And mm -hmm. wow, he was an asshole. So let me tell you a little bit about Philip Class. And I'm All sorry right. if I'm offending anyone by saying this, but also I'm not sorry because he was a rude <laughs> debunker. So he was a guy who was positioned in a really good spot. He knew a lot of the right people. Um, mm -hmm. And so he was a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, he was the senior avionics editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. And he was the real, like, go-to guy for media people having to okay. do with anything space-related. And throughout the 50s and the 60s, he never really read anything on the topic of UFOs, okay. but he predetermined that all of it was bullshit. Like, <laughs> He was that guy who was like, I'm not going to read it. Screw you. It's fake. You're a bunch of kooks. Like, that. he was that kind of debunker, which okay. is different than what we talk about. So I just want to sure. clarify, those are two very different things. Now, he purposely, maliciously worked hard to destroy the reputation of well-known physicist and brilliant UFO investigator researcher, Dr. James McDonald. Dr. James McDonald did a lot for the UFO knowledge community and all that good stuff. Was a very intelligent man, very highly respected. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Dr. McDonald uh, died of suicide. And 
apparently a lot of colleagues accuse um, Philip Class of being a source of that experience mm. um, because he truly just shat all over Dr. James McDonald's reputation as all the work that he did his entire life mm -hmm. um, and tried to devalue him, which sucks. And I, it, it like he, he committed suicide. It's very sad. Um, he also, Philip Class, came after your friend, Stanton Friedman. <clears throat> and then also against Travis simultaneously. So this guy literally would go after anyone who had any kind of UFO uh, experience, um, any kind of theory. He would just shit on everyone. So he literally went into manuscripts that told the story of Travis's experience through his friends, through whoever talked about it, his brother Dwayne, and he altered quotations to reverse meanings of what people said and purposely misquoted people to make it look Ooh. false. No, buddy. That's not cool. That's not cool. He never directly contacted Travis, but he talked to every other person associated with Travis and tried to manipulate what they said in publications. But it doesn't stop there. Class accused Travis of being in a cabin the entire time that this uh, abduction happened. And apparently because he had an injury on his elbow, Travis had an injury on his elbow, apparently that was proof that he was injecting LSD and hallucinating his experience, according to class. Oi. Which, like, what? <laughs> what huh. cabin? Where did he get this LSD? Did you do a test on him? Like, come on, really? Um, but he, go, he went even further. And he went at so far as to blame Mike Rogers on coming up with the story because he was behind on production for his contract and uh -huh. that the story would excuse them from completing their work. It got to the point that a federal criminal investigator came to force Mike to sign a confession. And Mike literally got written affidavits stating that there was no way that he would have benefited and was actually harmed by the situation. Hmm. Philip Class then went after poor Steve. Steve moved to Texas and changed his name, and Philip Class still found him and offered him $10,000 in 1980 to claim that the case was a hoax. Which, in 1980, $10,000 is a lot of money. And Steve was not someone who had a lot of money, but he still did not take it and did not say it was a hoax because he knew it wasn't a hoax. But all of Travis's allies came at class, and they then said uh, everyone associated with the case would take another polygraph test to prove that they were honest. And if they flunked, then they would have to pay for their own polygraph. But if they passed, then class would have to foot the bill. So this actually scared off class a little bit. He then has a little bit of a seat, and the secondary polygraphs never happen. But one might ask, why would Class go that far out of his way to try to debunk this case? What do you think? Well, I have a couple questions. Okay. Um, are we saying that Class was 
was false in things he was reporting. Like yes. there, it is proven that it is proven that things he did said reported on are untrue. He changed people's words and published them. So sure, yes. but I guess where I say proven is, and this is this is why this is such a dicey thing. Proven in that it was it was like. Uh, documented elsewhere he changed words or somebody said he changed his words because those are two okay it was documented there were mul- and he did multiple things it wasn't like i said it wasn't just one thing he well, then, then like, i would say nothing class them. says then becomes a- admissible i guess if if it's documented that he acted and that he is lying then he's no longer in any way a credible anything so that's a, an interesting um, perspective to take when he's someone that works within what well, and I guess that's where I'm confused because I I've, I see his name pop up as like um as saying when that it, uh, like his name had popped up from uh, with a quote that his brother that brother Dwayne had said that he's not even missing and that that came from interviews um with the police so what I'm wondering is, again, if that was, if he's changing stuff and that's untrue, why is that still being reported? That's, that's where I'm confused. That's the question, though. That's my point, is that why is it being reported as it's false? Fact. Right? As fact. Right, yeah. right, right. Are there transcripts of these interviews available? That's what I would want to look at. That we could look into it. I can definitely say we could look into it. Because that would solve yeah. the problem. That well, would solve, a, that that's would that's solve the question. issue. I didn't read any transcripts of... That's why there, I love there transcripts. There were multiple different interviews. It wasn't just one. So there are lots of different sources that you could look into for sure. But I think you have to look past Philip Class to know why Philip Class did what he did. Because it seems strange that just one man would come through and just be a jerk about trying to debunk every UFO case when he was only working as this editor at this, you know, magazine. So, like, it makes me question, was he involved with the government? Were they paying him? Because apparently, allegedly, this is an sure. allegedly... He didn't get paid very much money at his job, considering he was going to offer someone $10,000 in 1980 to say it was a hoax. Sure. Like, like that's a weird amount. That's a weird thing. That's a little strange, right? So, Well, I mean, this was also a time when the National Enquirer, I mean, because this, again, this came up with this case specifically. The mm-hmm. National Enquirer was offering $100,000 to anyone who could prove that... Um, there were UFOs or extraterrestrials because right. the this case specifically came up with that mm-hmm. and they did not, I mean, the National Enquirer did their own investigation mm-hmm. and said, I think the exact quote was like, this is the plainest case of lying I've ever seen or something along those lines. I'd have to look up to get the exact quote. But um, so, so I mean, again, it's it's not just him that's that's saying this is something we're not believing. Like money was, this was a time when money was being thrown out there to prove that there was Bigfoot, to prove that there was all sure. of these crazy weird things. No, that's true. And so that was also an incentive for people to be doing these things, right. which was one of the reasons that was put forth as to why a person might 
if this were to be a hoax, a reason for it to be a hoax. Um, right. But the guy, the, here's the thing, the point of difference I'm going to make. Yeah. Is the National Enquirer is a newspaper company that has a sure. lot more money than one individual person. To foot was it again, money. was it him, the individual, or was there somebody it else was, funding well, it? If it was via a publication, then there was somebody else offering some money behind it. Allegedly, it it was through him specifically. But was he writing for a specific paper or publication at that point? Yeah, he was the editor, though. Yeah, so there you go. So You can say shit like that all the time. I don't know. I think it's questionable. That's me questioning it. But that doesn't bother me personally. But this is. Uh, but that's okay. That's fine. Yeah. We exactly. can. We can. We can both have a different perspective on this. That's True. totally fine. But the other thing is, is that we haven't even gone past class at this point. He actually hung out with a guy. <laughs> this is where when I say enter shady shit. Mm-hmm. Um, he hung out with a dude named Donald Menzel, and he was the OGD bunker before class. Mm-hmm. He was a highly respected astronomer out of Harvard. And Menzel was very well connected to the NSA, the National Security Agency. And he actually wrote to JFK saying, when we are properly cleared to each other, I can tell you more. <laughs> well, what? <laughs> like, you, you're not cleared to talk to the pres- president? Oh, okay. Sure. Sure, why not? Um, so there was just, like, some shady shit going on government-wise, which also is not surprising at all. Um Philip Klaas was most likely acting on behalf of a covert agency to debunk Travis's case to try to hide information from the public, allegedly. This is an allegedly moment. Potentially a classic case of an intelligence community operation. So one of the things that they talk about in the documentary is acting like he had to kill the case no matter what. Like, why would they want, why would he want, to kill that case? Why would the government want to kill that case? Why was it such a big deal to prove it wrong? Well, I mean, again, this is a time where you have all the reports of the men in black of the, you know, this was a, a common narrative at this point in our history. Yeah. And I think it's also a lot having to do with controlled information. Sure. And like who was providing that information and who was being believed. I mean, that's. And that was a big narrative in the 70s. Yeah. Like, th- that I mean, was it's a, a narrative huge part now. of. Like, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that they looked at it was it was a, a, a power struggle, essentially, right? So, like, the gatekeepers in the world of the media and academia were protecting the information they didn't want everyday people knowing for fear of the aftermath is what some people believe. Um, And that there was a whole, it could be that there was a covert um, situation where the government knew about this and were trying to be sly and like hire Philip class to like shut it down. Or maybe they didn't like, we don't know. This is like another situation where we're like, well, is it real? Is it not real? It's kind of up to you. So it's really interesting to see the levels that people went through to try to quiet the situation or to prove it wrong versus prove it right. But I guess, I don't know, again, it's the paranormal investigator in me. When I'm going in to investigate something, I go in first and look at what every rational explanation could be. Of course, yeah. I go into a home and I think, you know, again, you check the pipes, you check for rodents, you check ventilation, you check 
there's like a little checklist of stuff. You go in to debunk first, and then you start looking at the alternative. So for me, it's the same thing. I look to debunk first because 99% of the time, you're going to find something rational. Yeah, that's true. I don't think someone taking the perspective of trying to debunk means necessarily that they're working for the government or they have something nefarious going on. Touche. Personally. Like, again, that's what, I mean, at yeah. least that's what I do when I investigate something sure. is, is where is the rational? Because oftentimes that's where the truth exists. Not always. Sure. But often. Well, I will tell you one last thing about class is that he went so far as to uh, publish in Mosley's newsletter, Saucer Smear, <laughs> what a name, mm-hmm. um, on October 10th, 1983, his last will and testament. And it said to UFOlogists, or UF, UFOlogists, how would you pronounce that? To UFOlogists. Who to pub- UFOlogists? UFO, there we go. To UFOlogists who publicly criticize me or who even think unkind thoughts about me in private, I do hereby leave and bequeath the UFO curse. No matter how long you live, you will never know any more about UFOs than you know today. You will never know any more about what UFOs really are or where they come from. You will never know any more about what the U.S. government really knows about UFOs than you know today. As you lie on your own deathbed, you will be as mystified about UFOs as you are today. And you will remember this curse. He's a troll. <laughs> he's a total troll. But I mean, like, that's just it. He's, he's doing this because he knows it's going to piss people off. And they'll be like, where he doesn't give a flying blank. Like... <laughs> He's doing it because he knows it's going to get a rise out of people, and it does. He's a troll. He's a troll. He's a troll before the internet. <laughs> like, oh, there's a lot of trolls before the internet, that's let true. me tell you. But I will say this. I'll, I'll close it uh, with this last bit really quickly. Obviously, Kim has an opinion. I have an opinion. It is what it is. This is how we do our things. Because um, I, qu- I have a question about one thing. So... Uh, the phone call. When they checked for fingerprints, they did not find any fingerprints that belonged to Travis Walton on the phone. From the phone booth? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. That's weird. Yeah, that is weird. That is weird, isn't it? <laughs> In interviews that were given after he disappeared by, um, it was Mike and Dwayne, I believe that Dwayne and Travis were lifelong UFO buffs and frequently saw them and recently discussed what they would do if one of them was abducted. I did see something about Dwayne and his mom being people that were into UFOs. this This was both of them. This was said in interviews that they gave when he had disappeared. Huh. I must have missed that. Thanks for finding that. Um... Interesting. So it's already, what your point is, is that this is something that was on the forefront of their minds prior oh, to very it much. If, if, if they had, if they've already said, I've, we've had multiple UFO sightings, that is, I think, a relevant piece of information. That to me is a very different thing than somebody being like, 
I've never thought I've had any kind of experience and then I've had this experience. No, it doesn't say that, again, it is not to say it is not still true, but I think it can... It's a, it's a detail, It's relevant sure. in that if you have someone fixated on something, it, it's a relevant piece of information. When you couple that with the $100,000 that the Inquirer was, was looking into uh, offering. And I don't know, again, I, Kim is skeptical and, and Kim needs more, um, evidence, evidence, evidence. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be convinced of certain things other than somebody's word. I'm like, I'm sorry to say I need more than a person's word. I need evidence. I think where and, I get stuck too is that there, there's a weird dynamic with this kind of stuff is mm-hmm. that it's, it's a lot like anytime you deal with anything that has to do with any kind of hearsay where there's only one person that experienced something. Yeah. This could go back to like, I, I don't like talking about this, but like any kind of sexual abuse that a person yeah. goes through mm-hmm. that just because there wasn't another person there to see what happened doesn't devalue what actually happened to this person doesn't mean that what they're saying is false. And I almost, I'm not trying to compare like apples to apples of like, it's not the same obviously, but it's a similar concept in the sense that if someone experienced something, I don't want to devalue their experience if they are fully of the mind that this happened to them. What makes me also think too, is that a lot of people have a fear of ridicule having Mm -hmm. to do with this kind of stuff. So to come out and talk about it takes a lot of guts um, because you know that a lot of people are not going to take what you are saying lightly and they'll probably make your life miserable if you come out and say this kind of stuff, which is what happened. But he's also written a book, had a Hollywood movie done and has made an entire career out of this. So he's laughing on his way to the bank. (laughs) But the other guys involved in this... Like, two of the dudes had to leave the town and change their names because they didn't want to have anything to do with it, and it affected them in their lives for the rest of their lives. But they wouldn't have known that when they started this. True. You wouldn't know that going into some... I'm just, like... Let me let me be a uh, let me be a scully asshole for two seconds. Be a scully asshole, and like, then let me be full a on. And and I'm not even saying I believe all this. I'm just saying my. Let's let's go in an extreme direction with this. Let's not even say that this is a guy that experienced something and processed it as an alien abduction, because that, in my mind, is the more likely thing, is that this is a guy who maybe did go through something and processed it in a certain way, because mm-hmm. we do that. Well, that's like our entire last episode with Elma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If he has this in his brain already and, and something happens, and also, I'm sorry, but like guys out in the woods at night... Maybe. Oh, 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 oh. oh no. Uh, there's a reason there was that string of like alien sightings that were all looking like owls. Yeah, because a bunch of drunk guys go into the woods and they see owls and think they're aliens. Like, this is just, it's a thing. It's a thing, right? But let's put this aside. Um, let's go to the extreme of saying that this is a guy who said, I want to try to get this $100,000 from the National Enquirer. And if all of us say that this happened, there's no way they can turn it down and we'll split the money. Will you back me up on it? Yeah, sure. Boy, Hardy. Yeah, that sounds great. I meant to say Howdy and not Hardy. It got a little diminished (laughs) when I said Hardy. But y'all know what I meant. So at the time, nobody 
can know how this is going to blow up. Nobody can fathom that this is going to get the kind of attention it gets. And nobody thinks that you're going to get some investigative journalist who may or may not be looking to just stir up trouble or look for the truth who's going to make their lives miserable. You don't anticipate this kind of thing when you start something like this. That's fair. And I mean, again, this is this is being a very, very extreme. I'm not saying sure. this is what I believe in. I'm just making a point that people get pulled into something, especially, again, I think about some of the stuff when I was young, when I was in my 20s, that my friends could pull me into by just like, hey, 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 do this thing for me. And like, yeah, sure, what's the harm? And it blows up. And you're like, oh, Whoops. I made some bad. But now I'm in too deep. Yeah. Now I can't backtrack because now if I start to say something isn't true, I've made police reports. I've talked to the press. I'm going to look like an asshole. So I don't know what to do. And I am in over my head. That's also fair. I mean, there's lots of different directions it could go, truly. Sure. And yeah. I think this what's what's nice about this case mm-hmm. is that there isn't definitive yes or no. No, there's definitely not. No, I'm, I'm very much with you there. It's it's one of those, we leave it to you, the listener, to mm-hmm. decide what you think. But I will leave you with this, just some information about sightings um, in general, is that out of the people that claim to see UFOs, less than one out of ten of them report them. Mm-hmm. And... In 2013, over 12,000 UFO sightings were reported in the U.S. and Canada. So if only one-tenth report, and there were 12,000 reported, yes, Kim? I just want to stress that the very nature of the term UFO is an unidentified flying Flying object, object, and that is not the same thing as seeing an alien spacecraft. That's true. So it could be reporting that I see something in the sky that I cannot explain. I'm, I just, I want to clarify. Because again, Scully's got a Scully. Scully is scullying for sure super That hard. a UFO literally means something in the sky that is flying that I cannot identify. And that is not the same thing as seeing an alien spacecraft. But for some people it might be. Again, it doesn't mean that, like, on that little tally list of things it could be is alien spacecraft, but it could also be weather balloon. It could also be a piece from a space station. It could also be that really big, weird bird. It is, a, it is anything that cannot be identified that is flying. That's still a lot, though. 12,000? Just in one it's year. It's a lot of people in this country and a lot of woods and a lot of areas and a lot of drunks. Kim's just going to scully every single thing I, I, I say. can't help it. I can't. I'm sorry. I, it's, again, that is not, for me, evidence. It's anecdotal. It's interesting. And it's something to, in your big pot of things you're putting in to look at a case, it's a thing you put in the pot to make the soup. This is the soup. I'm trying to feed it to you. You are. (laughs) But this soup needs more salt. Okay, well, I'll add a little bit more salt by saying since November 1975, over 92,000 unidentified flying object sightings have been reported. From 75? So in the last, not quite, what, 50 years? 92,000. Yeah, I actually thought that would have been higher. I thought it would have been higher, too. But I think it's interesting that in just one year, there's 12,000. Yeah. 
So I, but I also think that has to do with technology, right? Because like how many Bigfoot sightings there are. Well, here's the deal. I feel like there's a combination of more people having access to information and also having access to technology and phones and like cameras on your phones and internet and just access to information. So the more information you have, the more access for documentation you have, the more sightings you will have, right? Well, but also, this works both ways. Because 1975, I can't Google, you know, is there a meteor shower tonight? That's true. So, like, I, I, I you see it that way. I see it the as information has become more accessible, I can look things up like, oh, there is a piece of debris from the space station falling tonight. Or, oh, I live in Seattle, Washington, which is right by what? Oh, Boeing? Hmm. (laughs) What could I be seeing right now? I live by a military base. What could I be seeing right now? I just, again, it goes, it it goes both ways. The, The access of information to say... It's what some people put out there for why sightings have decreased for a lot of the, for your Bigfoots, for your Loch Ness Monsters, for a lot of those things, as cell phones have become more readily available. It's not necessarily that if we're looking at this as being real, like, they didn't suddenly just stop being here as often. It's just, it's a lot easier to disprove because you see something, you pull out your cell phone, and if there's not actually anything to pull out a cell phone for, you're not. Anyway, sorry, I went on a tangent. I didn't mean to. That's okay. I like getting you riled up, so this was you a good do. time for me. <laughs> uh, it's one of your favorite things. Truly, I think this was the perfect case to Scully and Mulder uh, for the sake of Scully and Mulder. Um, and... Just curious to see what our listeners think about this one. Yeah, listeners, please let us know. Because, I mean, again, obviously, you know, we are, we are your resident Mulder and Scully, and, and Gabby did some fantastic research for this episode. Um, and it is in my nature to be the one on the side being like, Actually, hey, I want to poke some holes. I want to poke some holes. Um, but, but, like, we said earlier, I poke holes because I want to be convinced. So convince me. But also to that point, it's not like you're just saying, no, there's a, you all are a bunch of kooks. <gasps> no, like no, no, it's no. not Again, that I, type of debunking. It's a very uh, skeptical approach. I, I honestly, I very much believe he went through something. I'm not sure if what he went through was an alien abduction, but I would very much believe he went through something. I'm just going to say right here, right now, I want to believe, I want to believe that he went through an alien abduction because that's a cool story. Dude, right? I just truly, I'm like, how do you get this detail? Are you just a creative writer? Like, what's the the deal? You mean, is is it, wait, that's not helping your case. (laughs) How do you get this detail? Do you write fiction? Is that how it is? These fictional accounts you can fictionally write? Just, just, just let me want to believe, okay? No, I no, no, I'm sorry. I don't believe. mean to kill your joy. I know I can be a killer of joy. I don't want to kill people's joy. I just, I, again, I love stuff like this. I support people's stories. I support people's experiences. I do not choose to believe every individual experience that is shared with me, but I always appreciate when somebody shares their experience with me. Fair. 
And I don't necessarily doubt that they believe their experience. I sometimes doubt the f- fact of what happens. Should we call you Kim Doubt Fit? You would not be the first. <laughs> she doubts it. That's what I she does. I doubt it. Kim doubt it. <laughs> Stupid. Anyway, sorry. That's fair. That's okay. <laughs> I will just say that like, I, I think one of the funniest takeaways I have from this case is the difference of the UFO abduction section uh, in the movie versus mm. the actual story mm-hmm. because it's very like clockwork orangey in the abduction in the yeah. movie and it's super horror and it's... to me the actual story of the abduction with your friend John <laughs> is I know, way it's funnier. It's charming actually. It's I'm like, oh, way, cute. It, it feels kitschy. It feels like what you would see in a 1960s UFO weird movie film of like original Star Trek. Like that's what it feels it's like It's more delightful. To me. I'm, yeah. I kind of love this idea of like this guy coming in the room and this nondescript uniform and seeing the star. I don't know. Hearing his description of the abduction versus what is portrayed in the movie is, is so much more charming to me. I don't know if that's the I right. I wish the movie had that. Like, it would have been a better movie to me if it had well, the actual experience. It also somehow feels less, like, malevolent. Like, just... Yeah. These... Oh. these I fully it, left out a detail. I need oh, to yeah. add a detail. I All completely right. forgot. So one of the most charming pieces of information about the abduction itself mm-hmm. is that to this day... Travis Walton thinks that he accidentally got in the way of this UFO when he was on the ground and that because he got too close to it, the vibrations and the energy are what shocked him, killed him. The UFO then thought, oh, no, I killed a person. Let's take him on board and resuscitate him and bring him back to life and leave him with his people. Like, Travis Walton truly believes that he was killed and brought back to life by the aliens and then brought back. I mean, that's somehow so wholesome. Just these poor little aliens that were like, oh, man, we weren't trying to do that, buddy. (laughs) Which makes me, like, love the story a million times more. I can't believe I forgot to mention that. That's so cute. But it's it's also just like it's I think it's a way to look into the mind of Travis and to yeah. see his thought process and his perspective and like the wholesomeness of Travis. Like if you watch the documentary, you will see how he is a smart dude and he speaks really well and like understands physics and all the things that go into it and has spent his life telling this story and also welcoming other people into it to share the experience with him, which, yeah, you could profit from some of that, but also like, this is your life, man. Like he's turned his life into this entire story. So something, something I will also say, um, talking about documentaries and you know, I love a documentary. I love it. I've used documentaries as a, a big part of my research. Um, but one of the things we have to know as as people presenting stories is, I mean, because we are too, mm-hmm. documentaries are still entertainment. To a degree, yes. Uh, no, uh, documentaries are still entertainment. They are telling a story. They are shaping a narrative in the direction they want to shape it. That's true. 
a good example of that is I look at the Making a Murderer documentary, which shapes a very specific narrative when it is telling its story. That's true. Um, so it's, it's facts, but it is facts being presented in a way that is still shaping a narrative. That's true. So depending on who is making the documentary, you are going to get facts presented in different manners. That is true. Or, or a book even. I mean, you know, again, I publication. I like, I like books just because I can look at their sources and then I can look at their sources and cross-reference things. You could also look at our sources. <laughs> you can always look at our sources. Thank you, Ghost Daddy. But um, that's hard to do with a documentary because that's not part of the format, right? right. Yeah. You could look it up, but it's not You can look it up. Sure, sure, sure. It's, but it's one of the reasons why if I can find a book, I go for books personally. I go for books first because I like to see who are their sources and what can I myself then look up and you know, cross reference with other sources. Right. Because I'm that asshole. But yeah. anywho, <laughs> this brings us to Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! Kim, what you watching? Um, well, I do want to quickly give a little shout out to I, I spent this last weekend at um, Crypticon which uh, those of you who are not familiar and not in the Pacific Northwest is a, a horror convention that, that happens yearly. This is um, we had it this year after last year's was cancelled because of COVID and it was very safe lots of temperature checks and vaccination you know uh, requirements being shown and all that jazz. Uh, but it gave me a chance to to talk to a lot of amazing people, to panel with some really amazing people, um, to see some people I hadn't seen in a couple of years, which was which was absolutely lovely. Um, and and do some panels about some horror, get some new I got some good things for my list. Nice. Of movies to watch, which I am super, super, super stoked on. Um, I got to talk to a couple of other really cool podcasters. Cool. Which was really exciting. Um, I, I spent some time with Steve from the Steven Crypto Show, and, and uh, he's got an episode out now about Crypticon that y'all should check out if you're horror fans because they're really cool. But uh, uh, in terms of what I've been watching recently, right before Crypticon, I went and saw the new Candyman movie. Ooh, was it good? Um, I am a hardcore fan of the original movie. Tony Todd is just uh, amazing. He is he is so good in that, and the movie uh, is is so beautifully done. Like I hate the term elevated horror, art house horror, in a lot of ways because it it kind of puts like a class system on horror that I think isn't fair, mm-hmm. but. Candyman is 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 where we started seeing, you know, some some really beautifully artistically done horror. And this new one is uh, being described as a spiritual sequel. Oh, so you will appreciate it more if you've seen the original. There's references made. They go over basically the plot of it in it. But I, I do encourage anyone who wants to see this movie to watch the original. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was so good, so fantastic, beautifully directed. The acting was top notch. The use of the paper cutouts, um, the kind of paper cutout 
like oh, puppets, what you would call it, throughout. There was a trailer that featured them, but it's used as a storytelling device throughout the entire movie, and it's it's stunning. Um, the nice. movie packs a punch. Like, you will have feelings. You will have so many feelings walking out of the movie theater, but... Uh, it is it is worth a watch. See it in theaters if you are able to um, support the film, support the filmmakers, support the one of the things I love. It, Nia DaCosta, who I think is a, a fantastic filmmaker, and, and she's a woman, and we love that. I love female filmmakers. Um, I love female horror filmmakers, and and she's a woman of color. Like it's nice. it's it's so good. Um, watch the original, then go see. Candyman in theaters if you were able. That's what I have to say about that. And there's a lot more movies Noted. I've been watching because of 100 Days of Horror, but I will save some of them. Gabby, what you been watching? I already told you. <laughs> My creepy critics quarter was the Travis documentary right? and A Fire in the Sky. Uh, technically, I watched Fire in the Sky like two weeks ago and didn't want to talk about it on the last creepy critics corner. I forgot um, about that. <laughs> but... Uh, I didn't really have much time to watch much stuff in the last week because I had my bachelorette, my boochlerette. You did cause, because Gabby's getting married, y'all. Uh, I am. Um, but it was very fun. It was a, uh, a death of my single life, funeral of the single life um, <laughs> theme with Halloween decor and a boochlerette theme, which was very boochlerette. fun. And we did a haunted uh, scavenger hunt ending at... The Walker Ames house, um, which is a haunted house Port for those Gamble, of you Washington. who don't know. Um, yeah. In Port Gamble. Yep. I'm, I, I'm very sad to have missed it. I missed it because I was at Crypticon. <laughs> That's okay. The one, it was like we joked that the one thing that we both have going on this year, I this know. summer, was on the same weekend. It was on the same weekend. Because, one, I will say again, if, if people who found us from, from panels that I gave this weekend, welcome. Yes, welcome. Um, Sorry, I people wasn't there. People who've already been listening uh and and are continuing to listen who i got to meet this weekend or who i already knew welcome um shout out to nadia who is a supporter of the podcast who i got to spend some time with this yeah. weekend and whom i absolutely love well gabby that was awesome yeah well well looked at and thank you for finally bringing ufos the podcast every time i try or even think about it it kind of makes my brain explode because the Scully just takes over in a way that's not productive. <laughs> so I, I think, at least for now, you might be our unofficial like UFO expert. You mean person. Mulder? Uh, you need to be our Mulder, sense. yeah, because you know me. It's it's I can't. I've tried. I try to turn that's them off, fine. and I can't. And you know, we'll probably do another one about the more recent happenings because I've been dying to cover all the recent things. But there's been so much stuff. That's like been uncovered. There's some cool things happening too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So no, I, I, I think, uh, this will be the first of, of many to come. Yes, I agree. And having said that, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, we are ghoulish tendencies podcast, wherever you find, uh, any information on social media. So that would be your Instagram, your Facebook. It would be ghoulish tendencies podcast, uh, on literally everything. I would say our Patreon as well. The only thing that's ghoulish tendencies.com is our website. Our Twitter is ghoulish podcast. And, um, if you like what you hear, please head on over to Apple podcasts, give us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you again for listening. 
Have a great rest of your week and stay. stay.